So welcome to Severn and to week five of our series called The Upside Down Kingdom, in which we are looking at what the Christian life is really supposed to look like according to Jesus himself. Today, we are in a, um, a very interesting passage. It's Matthew chapter five, verses 27 through 30, and frankly, I cannot wait. Uh, verse 27, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, Everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Uh, This is God's word. So um, first off, if this is your first week joining us and and, and tuning in with us, I just, uh, what a wonderful time for you to be a part of Severin. Um, Jokes aside, if you've never read the Bible before and you're coming into this cold, then I'm sure that this is a, a really difficult passage for you to wrap your head around because, you know, first off, it's talking about lust and it's talking about hell. And there's one thing that, um, you know, I, I think it needs to be noted that, that you know, it looks narrow-minded. It, it, it looks like it has an incredibly negative view of sex. And I think uh, on the front end here, I think it's fair for me to be able to say that um, on the surface, uh, for the vast majority of people, the Christian view of sex is one of the most unattractive aspects about the Christian worldview as a whole. Uh, I've actually personally talked with people who felt strongly enough about this that they believed that the Christian view of sex actually undermines the credibility of the rest of the belief system. It can be seen as uh, inoffensive, or pardon me, offensive or intolerant or uh, just very off-putting to people that might otherwise consider it. But My conviction is actually the opposite. My conviction is that when you get underneath the surface of the Christian view of sex, that not only does it not undermine the credibility of the belief system, but actually it serves to shore it up. Meaning, my conviction is that the Christian view of sex makes far more sense than any of the alternative views. And if you would give me about the next 30 minutes, I'd love to try to prove that to you. So what we want to do this morning is based on Jesus' words here in verses 27 through 30, I want to talk about, uh, according to what Jesus said, what lust is not, what lust is, and how lust can be healed. Uh, So first off, you know, Jesus is obviously talking about lust here. I I think the first assertion to begin this time together with is the assertion that there is such a thing as lust. And full disclosure, when I was putting this talk together originally, I had considered sort of appealing to different books or maybe articles to try to prove to you uh, that lust is a problem for our society in general. But frankly, I just don't think that's necessary to do anymore. Maybe it was a couple of decades ago, but not now. Because when you look at things like, you know, specifically as an example, the Me Too movement and the way that that has unearthed what has evidently been Um, years and years of rampant sexual misconduct. I I just think that at this point in our culture, it is easier than ever to point to the reality that as a society, we are sexually out of control. And uh, according to Jesus' words here, Jesus would say that, um, you know, our our out-of-control view of sex and and, uh, 
and, and uh, sexual conduct and all the d- disillusionment that that's led to, um, the, the pain and the brokenness, the separated families, the ruined careers, the fatal obsession, the root cause of all of that, according to Jesus' words, is actually not that we have too high a view of sex, but that actually we have too low a view of sex. Meaning, one of the primary reasons that, that we have such trouble with sex is because we fail to recognize and really respect its power. See, the stuff Jesus says here about hell is really interesting because there's a lot of words that Jesus could have used. Uh, but the word Jesus chose to use for hell here is the Greek word Gehenna. Now, Gehenna was a word for hell, but Gehenna was also literally a garbage dump just outside of Jerusalem in Jesus' day. And so it was this, this, uh, this giant dump where you would throw everything that was unusable and rotten and decaying and deteriorating, and they would light it on fire. And so Gehenna was always smoldering. It was always smoking. There was always at least a part of it that was on fire. So when you think about it, this is a really vivid picture that Jesus is deliberately putting into the minds of the people he was speaking to that day in the Sermon on the Mount on the mount almost 2,000 years ago now. And what Jesus is, is basically saying is that sex is so powerful, it's so dynamic, it's so mysterious, um, that unless you and I learn to get a hold of it, then it will spread decay and deterioration and destruction throughout every part of our lives, and basically it's going to light us on, on fire. Uh, and one of the main reasons that we have such a problem with sex like I mentioned earlier, is very simply because we fail to, to respect it the way that Jesus calls us to. Uh, see, pop culture will tell you, generally speaking, that sex is basically an appetite, and it should be treated like every other appetite, meaning if you're hungry, you eat. If you're thirsty, you drink. If you're, if you're tired, you're asleep, and if you want to have sex, then you should have sex, and we don't really need to make a big deal out of it. And if you don't hold to that opinion, a lot of times you'll be seen as you know, narrow-minded, you'll be seen as you know, immature, like you need to grow up uh, and, and evolve maybe, or uh, you know, worst-case scenario, you'll be seen as very intolerant and offensive and all that. But the Bible does not teach that view of sex. The Bible does not teach that sex is just like any other appetite and should be treated and held up alongside every other appetite that we have. The Bible does not teach that. It might surprise you to hear that, that uh, modern neuroscience also does not teach that. I want to read you a quote from a book called Hooked where authors Joe McElhaney and Frida Bush write the following. They said, another critical finding of the neuroscience research is that sex cannot be dismissed as an activity with little or no impact on the person as a whole. We know sex involves the entire individual, the whole person. And this particular comment really caught my attention. They said, perhaps the most damaging philosophy about sex in recent years has been the attempt to separate sex from the whole person. Neuroscientific evidence has revealed this approach to be not only false, but also dangerous. Now, what they're basically driving at there is the reality that we cannot treat sex like it is just some appetite or it's some activity that does not have a profound impact on who we are as a person throughout really every area of our lives. And so Jesus is saying here that unless we learn to get control of it, then lust is going to spread like wildfire through our lives and it's going to cause uh, decay and destruction and deterioration throughout every part of our lives. So I think the question that all this raises for us is what then, if this is how dangerous this thing called lust is, then what then, according to Jesus, what exactly is lust? 
And our three ideas uh, this morning are really going to serve as three answers to that question. So with that, let's just get to our first main idea today, and that's that number one, lust is not the same as sexual desire. That might surprise you to hear, uh, but in this passage, and this is really important to hold on to, Jesus is not saying sexual desire is wrong because the Bible does not teach that. As a matter of fact, the Bible's overall teaching about sex and sexual desire is so, it is so overwhelmingly positive that it can make even people in our culture giggle a little bit. And to show you what I mean, I want to pivot now to um, a book called The Song of Solomon, which is an Old Testament book that is basically one long love song celebrating the sexual love between a husband and his wife. So I want to look at, at uh, Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, which says, uh, so first off, some, some context here. In chapter 7, you have the husband looking at his wife, who has come to him for sex, and uh, she's naked, and he's speaking to her and about her, and this is what he says. Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. He says, your stature is like a palm tree, your breasts are clusters of fruit. Verse 8, I said, I will climb the palm tree and take hold of its fruit. I just want to pause here. You do not need to be a Hebrew scholar to understand the picture that is being painted in those two verses. There is exactly one way to understand what I just read to you, and it's really important for you to see that I didn't make that up. That's actually in the Bible. And if you turn to chapter 5 of Song of Solomon, you'll see the other side of that coin, where this time we have the woman speaking. It's her husband who is naked, and she's looking at him, and this is what she has to say. Uh, This is kind of throughout chapter 5, verses 11 through 16. She says, his hair is wavy and black as a raven. His lips are lilies dripping with flowing myrrh. His body is an ivory panel covered with sapphires. His mouth is sweetness. He is absolutely desirable. All right, an Old Testament professor commented on this passage, and I want to read to you, it's actually an edited version for your sake, believe it or not. It's an edited version of what he had to say commenting on this passage. Here's what he said. He said, there is here no shy, shamed mechanical movement under the sheets. Rather, the two stand before each other, aroused, feeling no shame, but only joy in each other's sexuality. This is bare-faced rejoicing in sexual joy. See, there's two common misconceptions that people have tended to have really throughout human history about sex. One can be called the prudish view. The other one can be called the pagan view. The prudish view basically says sex is bad, kill your passions. The pagan view basically says Sex is just an appetite. Follow your passions. But both of those viewpoints are wrong in that they both have far too low a view of sex. All right, the pagan view um, does not recognize sex as power, while the prudish view does not recognize sex as goodness. So what I want you to see here in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus' words in verses 27 through 30, is that Jesus is not saying don't look at a woman with sexual desire because the Bible speaks incredibly positively of sexual desire. The Bible teaches that God invented sexual desire. In the Bible, there's an Old Testament book that's primary purpose is to celebrate sexual desire. So the Bible does not say, kill your passions, 
But what's also really important to understand is the Bible also doesn't say, follow your passions. What the Bible teaches about sexuality, and really what Jesus is driving at here, is the concept of channeling your passions. All right? So with that established, that lust is not just sexual desire in general, what exactly, according to Jesus, is lust? And there's two positive answers that we can give to that question in this passage. And and the first of those is going to be our next idea today. It's that lust is an impersonal desire. So Matthew chapter 5 Verses 27 through 28 reads, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Uh, But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So first off, when Jesus begins this section and, and says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, he's thinking of religious people who have heard and lived by the Ten Commandments all their lives. And what he's basically saying is, you've heard that as long as you're married and you don't cheat on your spouse, then you have obeyed the sex ethic. But basically, Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you a far more comprehensive understanding than just that. All right? And what he says is, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman, and and by the way, this is worth highlighting, this also works in reverse. So this also applies to a woman who is looking at a man. But notice what Jesus does not say here. Jesus does not say everyone who looks at another woman, meaning Jesus is not just talking to married couples here. And he also doesn't say everyone who looks at another wife. Now, the reason, reason I, I, I draw this out is because a lot of people have a tendency to believe that as long as you don't cheat on your spouse, and as long as you're not the person that helps an, uh, another married person cheat on their spouse— then you're in the clear. Jesus here is saying no. He says, if you want sex with someone to whom you are not married, or or, or let's phrase it this way, if you want to be physically one with somebody that you are not personally one with, if you want to be physically naked and vulnerable with somebody, but you aren't willing to be personally and legally and economically and totally and entirely naked and vulnerable with them, Jesus says that's lust. And that, when you, when you operate according to that and you give that control of your life, then you are, you are welcoming disintegration into your soul. And it's going to spread like wildfire. Um, see, the, the, Bible, the Bible's teaching about sex overall is that sex is an integrative act, meaning it's not just it's not just an activity that only impacts you know, one single part of you. It's an activity that, that really impacts every part of you. It has a profound impact on a person as a whole. Um, and, and again, that's why we mentioned this earlier. That's why the prudish and, and the pagan view of sex are both wrong because they both attempt to separate or split the body from the soul. So a, a prudish viewpoint is one that would say, well, let's just have a platonic relationship. Let's not get sex involved because, you know, the spirit's good, but the body is bad and dirty and all that kind of stuff is vile and we're not going to get into that. All right, so they're, they're actually attempting to split the body from the soul. Uh, whereas the pagan viewpoint says, hey, I would like to have sex with you. I just don't want to get married to you. And, and really what they mean is basically, hey, I want to be physically one with you, but I want to hold on to my own life. I'm going to keep my options open. I want to remain independent. And, and, and what they're doing, again, is trying to split the soul and the body. So with all that in mind, think about what Jesus is saying here. What, what, what Jesus is saying is if you're not married, but you look at someone and, you'd say, and, and you say, I, I'd like to have sex, but I don't want to marry, you're saying, I want you to give me 
I want you to give yourself to me physically, but I'm unwilling to entrust my whole self to you. And what that is, it's a splitting of the body and soul. So here's what's really interesting, and maybe you never thought about this way. What's odd is that, is that prudishness and paganism, in their attitude towards sex, uh, they look so different from one another. And they hate each other, and they denounce each other, and they're both convinced that the other person is what's really wrong with society, and they write articles about each other. But they're both utterly the same in the sense that both of them fail to see sex as an integrative act, and they fail to see how important it is to keep those things together. So I, I want to read a quote to you from a Christian psychiatrist named John White, who I think can say this as more succinctly and clearly than I can. He said, Immediate erotic thrill is the most superficial benefit of the sex act. The bodily exposure that arouses and accompanies sex can be profoundly symbolic and powerfully healing. He says it is healing if and only if it's the concrete sign of what is happening in the whole relationship. So it only makes sense that sexual relations be confined to marriage for mutual disclosure and tender acceptance is not the activity of a moment but the delicate fabric of a lifetime's weaving. What he's saying is that if, if sex is the embodiment, if it is the physical manifestation of the vulnerability and commitment that every other aspect of your relationship with another person is marked by, then it can be a powerfully healing thing. Because ultimately, God created sex as a, uh, a human being's way to say to another human being, I belong completely and exclusively to you. But according to Jesus' words here, if sex is used in any other way or, or, or outside of that context in any way, then something that could be healing becomes destructive. C.S. Lewis uh, put it this way when he said that if you're unwilling to make a complete personal commitment, to someone from whom you're asking a complete bodily commitment, then, then, then you aren't really after that person. You don't even really want that person. You just want an experience. And that person is nothing more than a necessary commodity for getting that experience. And in that sense, it's actually profoundly dehumanizing. And so first and foremost, uh, what we can see in Jesus' words here is that lust is an impersonal desire. But secondly, what we can also see in Jesus' words is that lust is an inordinate desire. Desire, And to see that, I want to look at the same two verses here, where Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust, we're going to focus on this word now, to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The word that Jesus uses for lust here is a word that is almost never used referring to sexuality. Uh, I actually heard a pastor say that, that of the 62 times that this word is used throughout the Bible, only twice is it used with any kind of reference to sexual relations. Um, it's a Greek word called epithumia. And, and what it literally means, it literally means an, an inordinate desire, an over-desire, an idolatrous desire. It means you're taking something good and you're trying to get from it what you can only get from God. And when you really think about that definition of lust, frankly, I think that explains just about everything. It explains why specifically in our culture, you know, we write so many songs and so many books about relationships and romantic love and sex, and they're always the most listened to songs and, and, and you know, the best-selling books. It explains why we are so driven by it. 
uh, why we are so convinced that life isn't even worth living if you can't have it. It explains uh, all of that. Because as, as Jesus is, is saying here, what we're really doing is we're trying to get something out of it that only God can give us. But here's, what, here's what's scary when you really think through Jesus' definition of lust here. What this means is that you can be squeaky clean on the surface, uh, just like the Pharisees were that Jesus was constantly butting heads with. But even if, if only in your heart, if in your heart you've told yourself, well, if I could just get somebody to love me and I could have this perfect marriage and this perfect family with these perfect kids, then I would finally feel valuable. Then I would finally be happy. Then I would finally be whole. If that's a mindset, even in your heart, then, then you are guilty of lust according to Jesus' definition of it here. You're, ac- you're actually just as guilty of it as somebody who's living in obvious, overt sexual immorality like the prostitutes in Jesus' day that the Pharisees would always look down on. See, my whole life, I have heard that this passage is speaking against even sexually fantasizing about another person. And certainly, to be clear, Jesus is speaking to that. But what's so important to see is he's speaking about so much more than that. What he's, what he's talking about is something that, that we all almost universally do. He's talking about looking to another person to be for you and do for you what only God can be and do for you. And according to what Jesus is saying here, if you are married and this is your viewpoint, then there are already problems in your marriage because of it. Or if you're not married, if you're single and this is your viewpoint, this could be one of the main reasons why. Because what you're saying is, if I could just find this perfect person who could perfectly love me, then my life would be worth living. But the reality is that no one can be that for you. No one can do that for you except the one who is the real lover of your soul. And according to scripture, until we have God as the lover of our souls, then we're not going to be really good at loving anybody else. We're not even really going to be fit to be the lover of anybody else's soul because we're going to try to get out of romantic love what we can only get from, from God. And what Jesus is really pointing out here, and I think this is a profound commentary on mankind in general, what he's driving at is that one of the main issues with people is that we have a tendency to look to relationships, to romantic love, and specifically to sex, thinking that it's going to heal us. That then we'll be valuable, or then we'll feel secure, or then we'll be happy, then we'll be whole, then my real life could begin But what Jesus is saying is there's really only one person who's beautiful enough, that can love us enough to really satisfy us the way that our hearts are designed to be satisfied. And if we look to anybody else to try to do that for us, then our lives are going to be overrun with this inordinate desire that Jesus calls lust. All right? And so if that's what lust is, then I think the question remains, well, what are we supposed to do about it? What are we supposed to do with lust? How can it be healed? And what I'd like to do as we kind of start landing the plane here is, is offer you two things. First off, uh, something practical, but then secondly, uh, a principle. So first off, I'm going to talk about the practical. When Jesus says in this passage, when he talks about gouging out your eye and cutting off your hand, first off, I hope that you know that Jesus is not speaking literally there. The Bible does not advocate, it certainly does not promote self-harm and bodily uh, mutilation. What Jesus is doing with those two pictures is he's giving us two practical ways to deal with lust. First off, Jesus talks about the eye. Now, the eye obviously deals with how you view things. And so what that means is that if, if you and I want to deal with lust, we can't, you, you can't simply work on the will. You can't just say through sheer 
you know, effort and willpower and self-control. You can't just say, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it. The last time really was the last time, and I mean it this time kind of thing. You're going to see very little success if that's kind of your, your, your battle plan. What Jesus is saying is that you have to change the way that you view lust. And so what that means is that when you're under the influence of it, you have to remind yourself, you have to teach yourself to see it for what Jesus says it is here. You have to see when you're under the influence of lust that really this is an act of idolatry. You have to tell yourself, I'm seeking God. I'm seeking acceptance. I'm seeking closure. I'm seeking healing. I'm seeking peace. And, and I'm basically looking outside of God. I'm looking to this thing to give it to me, and it's never going to be able to give it to me. You have to be able to see that your lust is driving you towards something that not only will never deliver on its promise to you, but it's going to leave you far worse off for having pursued it. And I think anybody tuning in right now, regardless of whether you see eye to eye with the biblical's view of lust, I'm con- I really do believe that anybody tuning in right now, if you have followed lust down that path as far as it goes, you know, you know that it does not lead to anything good. So first off, we have to see this thing for what it is. But Jesus also talks about the hand here. And in talking about the hand, Jesus is saying that you, you, on the other hand, you really do have to be concerned about your behavior. It means avoiding places of temptation. It means doing everything you can to either remove the temptation from you or remove yourself from the temptation. Because if you only think cognitively, uh, you know, with the way that you view lust, but you never think behaviorally, you're going to fail. But on, on the other hand, if you only think behaviorally and never focus on the cognitive, you're going to fail as well. So it's a both and kind of thing. And if you want a picture of what this looks like, there's a perfect picture of it in Genesis chapter 39. In Genesis 39, Potiphar's wife was going after Joseph and, uh, and, and she wanted, you know, to sleep with Joseph even though um, they weren't married, and, and actually her husband was the master of, of Joseph's house who had treated him really fairly. Uh, and so Joseph, in response to her proposition, this is exactly what he said. He said, how could I do such a great evil and sin against God? And then when she continued to pursue him, uh, that story actually says that Joseph literally physically ran out of the house. He, uh, it was basically like he was running for his life. And what Joseph did there in, in Genesis 39 was exactly what Jesus calls us to do here. And we have to see lust for what it is. We have to remind ourselves what it actually is. And then we need to do whatever we can to get away from it. And and what Jesus is saying in this passage is that for everybody who claims to be one of his followers, that's exactly how he expects us to handle, to deal with lust, when and not if uh, it becomes an issue in our lives. So with that, I I just, um, I said I wanted to give you the practical and then we'd we'd focus on a principle. And so I'm going to pivot to that now as we close. But I just want to offer this. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say something. I believe that, you know, and, and this is coming from over seven years of, of talking with people and meeting with people and, and listening to people as a pastor. I'm going to go out here on a limb and say that, that the vast majority of people tuning in with me right now, giving this understanding of lust, that it is an impersonal desire and it is an inordinate desire, I'm willing to bet that, that the vast majority of people who are tuning in if they really got introspective and were honest with themselves, you would say that, that uh, you've already struggled with this. And maybe it's already spread throughout your life and it's already caused you a great deal of pain and there's been disintegration and there's been decay and there's been destruction. There's been everything that Jesus warns about in this passage. And so if that's you uh, and this has you feeling condemned or this has you feeling dirty or this has you feeling hopeless because I've tried to resist before and you know it's not going to work and, and all that kind of stuff, then, then this last piece, uh, this is really meant for you. And this is the principle that, that really is so necessary if we're ever going to see real healing from this. 
A number of times throughout Scripture, Jesus uses this really kind of wild uh, metaphor to describe himself and the relationship to his followers. Jesus calls himself a bridegroom. And, and again, with that, numerous times throughout Scripture, uh, we're reminded that for followers of Jesus, we are literally the bride of Christ. Now, here's why that's so important of a metaphor to look at. If you only think about Jesus as your king, uh, then you're never really going to have the confidence that comes from knowing that he looks at you and he finds you beautiful. And he finds you lovely, he finds you pure, he finds you radiant, regardless of all the things that you've done, uh, all the things that you've told yourself, or all the things that other people have said to you or about you. See, the, the gospel says that it's not me giving God a righteousness and then he's going to owe me. The gospel says just the opposite. It says that God, through Jesus, who has lived the life I should have lived and died the death that I should have died, God, through Jesus, gives me a righteousness that I only need to receive by faith. And the moment that I do, I'm beautiful in his sight. That's what the gospel says. And unless you believe the gospel, then you might have Jesus as your king, you might have Jesus as your teacher, you might have Jesus as your inspirational figure or your example or all kinds of other things, but you're never going to know him as your lover, the actual lover of your soul. And if you ask me, I think it's actually kind of amazing that Jesus chose to refer to himself in this way because in thinking through that metaphor of Jesus as the bridegroom, I mean, it, what it did is it brought me back to that moment when I met Katie at the altar, when I was her groom and my wife Katie was, was my wife on, you know, that, that moment that we made that promise before God and man. And just thinking through this metaphor, I remember, like I went right back there, never forget this day as long as I live, standing at that altar, getting ready to make this promise before God and man. And I saw Katie appear, uh, walking down that aisle and uh, I, I was just completely overcome with emotions like, um, like I had never experienced before. I remember seeing her. I mean, she's beautiful to me now. She's radiant to me now. But I remember specifically that moment, just how captivating she was to me. I couldn't take my eyes off her. I remember how radiant she was, how lovely she was. I remember how proud I was, how honored I felt that I had somehow convinced this woman to spend the rest of her life with me. And I remember how excited I was about the fact that from that moment forward, this journey had begun for both of us. This adventure had begun for both of us where we were going to walk hand in hand through life with a no matter what kind of love. And the reason I say all this is because all of that is implied in this metaphor Jesus uses when he describes himself as a bridegroom. And so I just want to ask you, in light of all of that, I need to ask you a question. This might be really hard for some of you to wrap your mind around, but, but the question is, do you believe that God sees you that way and that he thinks about you that way? Because according to the gospel, in Jesus, he does. According to the gospel, he sees you as pure, he sees you as radiant, he sees you as lovely, he's excited, he's enthralled about the idea of you two having a relationship that will extend into all eternity with a no matter what kind of love. Now, the reason it's so important to ask yourself, and for all of us to ask ourselves if we really understand that, is because to the degree that we understand that love, to that degree, we will be able to handle sex without it handling us. It's not going to run our lives. You know, if, if you're single and you, and you really come to understand this love and grow in this love, if you're single, 
knowing that kind of love that God has for you in Jesus is going to keep you from saying no to the right relationship. It's going to keep you from saying uh, yes to the wrong relationship. And it's going to keep you from being bitter and despondent if you never do get married. But if you already are married, then when you come to understand this love, it's going to keep you from crushing your spouse under the weight of your expectations for them. But what we all need to accept, and what Jesus' words lead us to in this passage, what we all need to accept is that until we have Jesus in our lives as the lover of our souls, then there is going to be a fire in our lives. And that fire is going to spread. That fire is never going to be satisfied until our hearts are satisfied through a relationship with Jesus. Every human heart desires that somebody else would be vulnerable for us. But the gospel shows us, the gospel shows you that only Jesus has become perfectly vulnerable for you, stripped naked on the cross. Every human heart desires that somebody would be perfectly committed to us. But the gospel says that only Jesus has been perfectly committed to you, laying down his own life for you, even while you were his enemy. And every human heart desires that some that someone on the outside of us would look on us, would behold us, and see us as beautiful. And the gospel says that only the way in which Jesus beholds you, only the way in which Jesus beholds you can truly satisfy your heart all the way to the bottom. And that kind of love, when you internalize it, when you walk in it, when you grow in it, when you preach it to your heart, when you have your Christian brothers and sisters remind it to you early early and often, that kind of love, it can heal you in ways that you never imagined. So whoever you are tuning into this, I hope that you experience that love in Jesus. If you already have, I hope you experience it in deeper, more meaningful, more life-changing ways. But if you've never experienced it before, I hope you come to experience that love in Jesus. It can be yours. He has it. It's waiting for you. He's just waiting for you to call out to him, to ask him to be your Lord, your Savior, and the lover of your soul. That's it. And that's all.